3: I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. The conversations I've shared with renowned thought leader and spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle have been some of the most meaningful of my life. His wisdom has been so transformative, I keep a copy of his book, A New Earth, on my bedside table. I didn't understand the true meaning of ego until I met Eckhart. I used to think the ego presented itself as arrogance, selfishness, or feelings of superiority. But, I know now that it's not always someone who's acting out or showing off. Everyone has an ego. And I believe most people aren't even aware of how it affects their daily life. Understanding the ego's constant disruption to our spiritual development is such an integral lesson in our path to awareness that it's become one of my very favorite topics to discuss on Super Soul Sunday. If you watch the show regularly you will almost always hear me ask, what role does the ego play in this situation? This is the essential question we should all be asking ourselves whenever we encounter difficulty. As you hear the words of wisdom selected for this chapter, you will begin to understand how the answer is universal. The ego has the power to influence or derail every aspect of our lives. Accepting this as truth opens the door to where the real work begins. It was Eckhart who opened my eyes to how an ego-based mind can dominate everything. Ego represents that part of ourselves that identifies with our self-image, personality, talents, accomplishments, and perceived weaknesses. Everything that encompasses the false self. The ego draws a line and separates you from everyone else. It leads you to see the world as this is me and this is the other, when in fact, we all share the same source of spiritual energy. The ego makes judgments and longs to feel special. It loves conflict, creates enemies, and operates out of fear. In those moments, if you call your false self out by saying, oh, that's my ego flaring up, you begin to diminish its power. You begin to recognize that you are not your past, your social status, or the shape of your body. The size of your bank account has no bearing on your true self. What these conversations have taught me is that as we realize our own spiritual evolution, we have the miraculous ability to shed our current state of ego, As Eckhart Tolle says, the ego cannot exist in consciousness. Up first,
4: Eckhart Tolle.
3: Have you lost your ego? Yes. You have completely.
4: Well, let's see. Who knows? Tomorrow it may suddenly appear again. Let me know if it does, because (laughs) I wouldn't know it if it's really the ego.
3: This is one of my favorite quotes from page 64. You do not become good by trying to be good but by finding the goodness that is already within you and allowing that goodness to emerge. Again, we're talking about going to presence, the divine within you, and bringing that forth to whatever it is you do.
4: Yes, because trying to be good is often to improve one's self-image. Right, that's that's
3: ego-driven.
4: Ultimately, it's ego. So you try, and some people, for example, have been trying for centuries to love their neighbor as themselves. Right but most of them have been finding it very difficult, because love your neighbor as yourself really means, first of all, you need to be in touch with yourself, the self that you are beyond the form, and then you can love your neighbor as yourself because you recognize your oneness with your neighbor. And
3: so what you're saying is, that's so beautiful, I get it, lots of bing bing ah, ahas here. You're not what love your neighbor as yourself, as you're interpreting it, is not as yourself, the personality. No. Not as yourself who's out there mowing the lawn. It doesn't mean if you go to the theater, give your neighbor tickets to the theater or whatever. It means the deeper always. Yes. Inner self. Yes. Higher self.
4: Yes. So love, I call love the recognizing yourself in the other. And yourself, your essential self, is consciousness. Got it. Then uh, I begin, when I then meet people and interact with people, I see them on two levels or feel them on two levels. On one level, they are the form, yes, which is the body and their psychological makeup. Correct. On another level, they are the consciousness that I also am, because underlying the body and the mind is the consciousness out of which the body and the mind have come, and that is still there that pure essence. You see that
3: in every person that you encounter?
4: Yes. Yeah. And that makes it much easier to interact with people and much more pleasant, because sometimes the personality, the psychological makeup, yeah. is not that wonderful. Yes. <laughs> and then one is able to let that be, because you can sense that beyond that, there is an essence to that human being. Next up, Wayne Dyer. It's like the
5: first nine months of your life, we right. went back to your that's conception. Right. You trusted yeah. God for everything. Everything. You didn't say, oh my God, I hope I get a nose and I hope it yeah. shows up in the right place. Yes. And you were totally, completely yes. into surrender. Yes. Then you come out, okay, at the ninth month or that, you, you pop out, and you get surrounded by people who say, that's really good work, God, really good work. We'll take over from here.
4: Yeah.
5: And the minute you start taking over from here, what happens is you develop an ego. Which is where you edge God out, E G O. You edge God out, okay? And so now, oh, as I you, never heard it that yeah, way before. Yeah, that definitely. is so good. Yeah. So you edge God out, and you just push oh, that to that's the side. Good. And what is this ego? What is it? It I'm is. I'm gonna be
3: quoting you on
5: that. It's an idea, Oprah. It's all it is. It's an idea that we carry around. You know what the idea of the ego is? It says, "I am what I have. I am what I do." I am what other people think of me. I'm separate from everybody else. I'm separate from what's missing in my life. And I'm separate from God. Those are the six components of the ego. And that's what we're raised on and what we're trained on. Meantime, we showed up here. We didn't have to do a thing. This is Father Richard Rohr. So you believe within each of us there is,
3: which I sense that too, there's a true self and a false self. And our goal in life is to follow the road, the path, the light
6: to whatever is the true self. The true self. And how
3: do we know which is what?
6: The false self is the fabricated, concocted, self that we have to do. It's not wrong. The false self is not bad, but it's your persona, it's your education, it's your race, it's your sexual orientation, it's your country, all of which are necessary to create a an ego structure. Yeah. that's not you.
3: It's the answer that people most often give when somebody says, who are you? Yeah. Or yeah. what do you do? Yeah. I am Buddha, my I name, am, I do the son, so-and-so, my mother is and so And you're saying, although But in some ways, that is a real self.
6: It is. That's why I I wanted to say it's not bad. You don't want to put it down. It's the raw material that you fall through to find your true self. How do we get to that true self? That's the goal. I want to be in that space. (laughs) I think you are, but none of us are 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. It's largely a matter of letting go of the false self. Like, let's say, Someone doesn't kiss up to me and call me father or respect my importance or my intelligence. Or now, the fact
3: that you've written 30 y- books. Yeah, or, yeah.
6: So I'm offended for how many seconds? I don't know. But then I say, now what part of you, Richard, was offended? It's always the false self. The true self can't be offended. It can't, there's nothing to offend. It's, it's too large. It's too grounded. It's too real. That's my simple rule of thumb, Oprah, how to recognize the false self whenever you take offense. Welcome, Brene Brown. To
0: me, I call the ego the hustler. Mm, He's my hustler. Yeah, that's a good term for it. Yeah, Yeah, he's the hustler. And the ego says to me, you have no inherent worth. You gotta hustle for it, baby. How fast you're gonna run, how high you're gonna jump. Mm -hmm. How many likes do you have on Facebook? How many comments do you have on that post? That's the hustle. Yeah, and isn't it, we now live in a culture that measures itself, ourselves, by how many likes we get. For sure. Yeah, yeah. We are in, I feel like, scarcity culture. Never enough. Never good enough, thin enough, rich enough, safe enough, certain enough. And you know, what I think is interesting is, I wanted to get your thought on this, just because you've also been looking in the faces of people for the last many years, right? Yes, yeah. I started my research six months before
3: 9-11.
0: Obviously, coincidentally, we are afraid. I would say the last 12 years have been marked by a deep fear in our culture. It's like a collective post-traumatic response. Like, all of a sudden... Oh, my God, I just had a big aha. Oh,
3: well, that was such I a like big aha. I, 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 that Tell was such me, a...
0: no. I can When you back. just said that,
3: I just realized that we shifted from being on alert and afraid of whether it's the orange code or the yellow code... We somehow internalized that fear and it shows up. It shows up That's in it. the bickering and the snarkiness that we have internalized the fear. So we're not That's worried it. about what the code alert is anymore because we think we're safe there. We got Homeland Security looking at that. But that fear has been internalized.
7: That's what I heard you saying. That's it.
3: Dr. Shafali Sabari.
7: We are one. We. We are one. Are one, yes. Then we enter the ego. We split off from that source and enter ego. And the way the parenting paradigm has been set up is just designed for even a greater boost of ego than I've ever seen in any other relationship. Yes. And what, how does the ego sound? It's my, I. Correct? We Mm -hmm. we start talking like this. Mm -hmm. I, as a parent, my child, right? The possession, the ownership, it's inherent. That's why I love this relationship because it's such a trick from the universe, you know? The universe gives you children. It says they're yours. So it seduces you to thinking it's mine. Like you have to call them mine, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not wrong in saying mine, but yet the child comes out and says, I'm not you, I'm not you, I'm not you. Now deal with me, attune to me. Do you recognize my spirit? I will not belong or be yours. I can come through you, but I will not be yours. So let's take a big myth. They're all big, but the first one I talk about is that parenting, we've been told, is about raising the child. And parents say to me, well, what could be wrong with that? Who should I be raising? Yes. And when I turn the spotlight to them, and I say that you cannot even dare to have the audacity to think about raising another being, until you yourself are parented. You have raised your own self to the highest level of evolution. Then you can aspire to meet this being who is living in the present, who has no attachment to identity. Our children, young ones under the age of five, they're not attached to, how do I look? Am I complete? Do I need to become someone? They say to the world, they declare if they had a chance. They are born knowing they're enough. They don't think I need to become a lawyer, a scientist, go to any Ivy League school to give themselves a stamp of approval. We put this lack onto them. So if we continue with this idea that we are noble beings, selfless, right? And I tell parents, you have to own that there's a big degree, a high amount of narcissism, egoic desire to fulfill your own self, to have children. Parenting is not selfless. There are elements of selflessness in it, but the driving force to have a child comes from your own desire to complete something within you. Wow. And that's why children revolt. Either they withdraw, because they've just been shackled with compliance after compliance, or they revolt, and then, boy, then we are told by culture, oh, now you better punish them. culture is not outside of us, you know.
3: Yeah, so the myth is that parenting is about the child, even though you are parenting your child, parenting is really about you.
7: If you don't raise yourself first and parent yourself, you will then aspire to make your child a mini version of yourself. So you're actually not even raising the child then, you're just raising yourself. So let's just call it what it is, rein that ego in, parent yourself, and then you will attune to your child. Then you will make space for the spirit of your child to unfold.
0: Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store.
5: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life
6: is a highway.
5: And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
6: of a detour. One, two, three.
5: Four. those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.
3: Jack Canfield. How big a role does our own negativity play into what the future is? I know you write about gossip. You say... Gossip and judgment affect you too because you end up releasing a poison into the river of energy I love this that is set up to bring you that which you truly want It's releasing a poison into the river
8: of energy That's set up to bring you that which you truly want right every time we are negative about someone else We are actually affecting ourselves and the other thing that's important, you know this too, because I've heard you talk about it, is every time we judge someone else, it's just a projection of our own self-judgment. Parts of ourselves we don't accept or parts of ourselves we won't give permission to express. And so basically, you know, the old thing when you're pointing your finger, there's three fingers pointing back. Mm-hmm. And so I always tell people is that whatever you focus on, you get more of. That's so right. if I'm gossing about someone that I'm judging or being negative about, then I'm actually creating more negativity inside of me and I'm not focusing on what I want. And what I teach in the success principles is you always want your focus to be on what do you want to be producing in life? What are your goals? What are the qualities you want to be experiencing? And if you're not doing that, then you're wasting your time. You're not going to get to where you want to go. Jeff Weiner,
3: There was an article about you about your evolution that Fortune magazine did a while back. And you were described as someone who, quote, wielded your fierce intelligence like a blunt instrument. Hmm. And when you read that, you felt what?
2: I think when I was a younger executive, I had a tendency to make the same mistake that a lot of inexperienced executives make, which is projecting onto your team the way you do things and expecting them to do things the way you do them. And when there's any kind of dissonance, when someone's not doing things the way you expect them to be done, you can get frustrated and you express that frustration. And it's a mistake. And what's far more effective is to, and this in part is where managing compassionately comes from, is to get out of your own head to recognize that not everyone has the same strengths. Yeah. To recognize that once you understand what motivates somebody, what they're good at, where they find challenges, what they're fearful of, you can get the most out of that person. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was through an interaction I had with my own manager where I was expressing to that person that I felt they were not managing compassionately, that I realized I was actually doing the exact same thing with okay. someone on my so team. So tell me
3: that I think this is good. This is a good story. You're in a meeting and somebody who's being a jerk and constantly being passive aggressive.
2: Yeah, we would get together, a team of uh, leaders, as part of the staff meeting for this individual. And there was a colleague of mine, a member of this person's team, who was very effective in their role, but they weren't doing the job the way our manager wanted them to do the job. Yeah. And so it would frustrate them to no end, and they would make jokes at this person's expense. They would undermine them in front of the team. And I remember thinking this is not good for the individual, it wasn't good for my boss, and it wasn't good for us as a team. So we would have one-on-ones every now and again, and I said, hey, I've gotta give you some feedback. I said, the next time you feel like making a joke at this person's expense, or you get frustrated and let them know in front of all of us, you should go find a mirror and express that frustration to yourself. Wow. Because you're the reason they're in the role. And if you don't like the way they're doing their job, take the time to coach them. And if they're not capable of doing the job the way you believe they should be able to do the job, find another role for them. And if that's not gonna work out, then transition them and do it in a way that's compassionate and constructive. And a couple of weeks later, we reconvened. And he said, I have to thank you for your advice. And as he's saying this, I realized I was doing the exact same thing to someone on my team, the exact same thing. And so in that moment, I kind of vowed that as long as I was going to be responsible for managing other people, I was going to aspire to manage compassionately, where I wasn't necessarily trying to have them do things the way I did them, but I was putting myself in their shoes, understanding what motivated them, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, and try to, to lead as effectively as possible.
3: So compassionate leadership is really like getting to the heart and soul of what a company really is.
2: Compassionate leadership begins with the connection between individuals. And a company is comprised of people. That's all it is. So when you are building upon a foundation of compassionate management, ultimately what the company is about, its vision, its mission, its culture, its values, all of that stuff is manifested in the way that its leadership is leading, in the way the managers are managing. So in that regard, yes, managing compassionately becomes a bedrock of an organization. Bill Jackson.
3: You um, talk about benching the ego in, yeah. in 11 Rings and how important that is as a step to bench that ego. But in a world where, and particularly for those of us on the outside world, it just looks like, I mean, that's a world filled with a lot of, not just big, but tall egos. Yeah.
8: Sure. <laughs> for sure. And money. And, and the and money. money is there. And, you know, we have a, you know, salary cap and everybody's trying to reach the maximum salary cap. And there's all these very many great pressures on these young men to really serve themselves because they're thinking it's my family. I'm looking after my group, my family, my mom, my dad, and you know, they want to provide. And you have to forget about the family, your contract, where you're going to be next year, the fact that you're not guaranteed. All these things have to be set aside and we have to be in the moment. Yes. To be now. You
3: know, when you address this, I'd never thought of it this way before for a player. You said, because I started as a player, I've always been able to empathize with young men facing the harsh realities of life in the NBA. Now, I thought, harsh realities in the NBA? Most players, you say, live in a constant state of anxiety, worrying about whether they're going to be hurt or humiliated, cut or traded, or worst of all, make a foolish mistake that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. When I was with the Knicks, I was sidelined for more than a year with a debilitating back injury. And that experience allowed me to talk with players I've coached from personal experience about how it feels when your body gives out and you have to ice every joint after a game or even sit on the bench for an entire season. You know what I thought when I read that? No experience ever goes wasted. Because that had happened to you, you were able to relate to somebody else in your coaching field who had to go through it.
8: I was once invited to a little conclave, Bill Bradley put it together and he opened it and there were seven couples there that were sharing ideas. He opened that by saying, I want you each to tell a story of your biggest failure that turned into your greatest asset.
3: Mm -hmm.
8: And it was amazing to listen to all the stories. My story was that story, obviously. Sideline, team playing well in Mm -hmm. New York and having to sit out and the consequence of that led me into greater understanding of being a player. Not only that, but a relationship with a coach that probably spawned where I'm at today or, or my career.
1: Pima children. A lot of people I've encountered, the losing the job, the failure coming in any kind of form, what it really gets to is at the core of it, you feel like you really messed up and you yeah. are fundamentally a mess. A up.
3: mess, Yeah. 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 And that's... But that's an ego thing, isn't it?
1: That's the crux of ego. The main attachment is to that, yes. to that. But if you just say, let's just say, let's make friends with the ego, rather than try to obliterate it or call it bad. Yeah. And making friends with it means know it 100% completely, don't reject it. And believe it or not, that's how you begin to become a more egoless person, because the only reason we do this grasping and fixating and all of this, which we call ego, if I'm making sense mm-hmm. in is because we feel we have something to protect. We don't want to go to that place. We don't want to feel that way. Yeah. And this is why I teach is because if people can hold or embrace or allow or get their nervous system so they can handle the suffering, the uncomfortableness, the insecurity, the discontent, then there is a chance of letting the evolution happen.
3: I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.
5: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.